Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is a, there's a lot happening today. Uh, there's a lot happening in this passage. Uh, so real quick, um, after communion, so in the service, we're sending out one of our deacons. He and his wife, are, uh, they are going to Denver to help start a church. And I'm going to try not to get too emotional about it. So stick around. If you're the one that kind of people that runs over there, get your kids to get right to the playground. Don't miss the second half. Got good stuff coming for you. Um, in your bulletin, you'll notice we got a new Albany member on the front of the bulletin. That's Miguel Monroy looking fresh. Um, not a church today, apparently. <laughs> Maybe he just didn't want the attention. Um, but we're, we're highlighting different people through our four churches every week. Uh, who have somehow embodied a faith that works, that's in line with the, temp, uh, the, the text that we're dealing with. So you can read a little bit about Miguel's story in here, inside your bulletin. And then Wednesday, for you members, we've got a member meeting. Wednesday at 6.30, and it's, uh, if you're a member or a member in process, come to it. Uh, there's uh, quite a bit we're going to cover from installing new deacons, bringing forward elder candidates, everyone's favorite meeting of the year, uh, the budget proposal, right? You guys remember those first few years where it was like, we don't have enough money and we're going to pray, right? Like, uh, those aren't the case anymore. So these, the, the money part is at least a lot more encouraging and exciting. Um, and we're also going to talk a little bit more about some of the structural changes we made to the four churches in our vision series a few weeks ago. So come check that out. And then next Sunday is All Together Sunday. So we do these a handful of times a year where we close kids over there. We all worship in here together. Pastor Lachlan will be preaching. Um, so I guarantee it'll be funny. Beyond that, who knows? You know what I mean? Um, so come check that out. Uh, and there's a lot more going on in the back of the bulletin. Those are just the ones we're highlighting. Uh, so this text in James, we took a little break from James last week uh, to talk about parenting on Mother's Day and baby dedication. And uh, man, I've been really excited uh, to get into James. Um, it's one of my favorite books, partially because of the controversy. Uh, amongst professional Christians where people argue, should it be in the Bible? What does it really mean? It just kind of throws in a wrench into people's nice and tidy theological system sometimes. Uh, but, but beyond that, the controversy, uh, I like how intensely sober and practical it is. Uh, one of the strange things about the Bible, if you're willing to actually read it and not just like hunt for the things that justify your position, uh, if you're willing to actually read it, it will speak to you in such plain language and make you very, very uncomfortable. Uh, for almost whatever, whatever your struggle is, you'll be reading along and it'll say things one day like, like basically, you know, if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll be gentle. And you're like, oh, I'm a jerk, <laughs> right? Like, and it just tells it like it is. And so we're, we're 13 verses, we're picking up on thir verse 13 today. We're 12 verses in. And here's, here's some of the reality pills that James has given us so far. Uh, first, right off the bat, right in the beginning, um, he says, life is hard, right? He says, when troubles come, this is up in uh, verse two, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come, when troubles of any kind come. So he's saying like, hey, listen, if you're alive, trouble's gonna come for you. So don't be surprised. Life is, life is very difficult. Uh, second, he'll talk about, he says, life is complicated. He follows that up with like, if any of you lacks wisdom and like anybody, have you been alive enough to get to a situation where you have no idea what to do? You know what I mean? When you're just like over your head. And even on a grand scale as a nation right now, like we had another school shooting, another school shooting. And if, I mean, I'm not proud of this, but you see that happen and you're just kind of like, yeah. You know, like, I don't, even, I don't even know what to do. The NRA people are going to argue. The liberal people are going to argue. And then we'll just argue past one another and another school shoot. What do we do? You know, and James is saying, yeah, there's a lot of gray in life. And if you're the least bit awake, 
you'll face situations that are way over your head and you won't know what to do. So that's 12 verses, right? Uh, Pastors know these realities really well, even though they don't prep you for it if you go to school for it. Um, You you get on the job, and if it's not like a traumatic injury where, like, blood's involved, people, they've even, like, everyone gets spiritual when tragedy comes, and they want to talk to somebody there. And so, like, the pastors here are kind of like spiritual EMTs. You know, you get called when something terrible happens, and you see there aren't always black and white answers, and life is hard. Here's the secret. Life is hard for everybody, Right? There is no like secret club that gets to have a hard life. And sometimes we fall into these deep pits of despair and loneliness because we think something is happening to us that's totally unique. And, and James, like the rest of the Bible, is just shooting us straight. No, it's hard for everybody. And he gives us another bit of dose of reality here in this text where he talks about temptation. Uh, and so there's a ton to cover. So we're going to dive right in. Like I have no neat transition here other than to say James gives us some hugely important lessons about temptation this morning. And the first one is similar to with trouble. Um, He says temptation is coming. Temptation is a reality. So verse 13, he says, remember when you are being tempted. Uh, He doesn't say, remember, should you find yourself in temptation? Or like, remember, if temptation comes to you, it's just like with trouble. He says, temptation is going to come. Uh, Until Christ returns, temptation is a normal part of the human life. Some of you have been beating yourself up for years and years and years because you feel the same temptation. And James is like, listen, man, you're going to be tempted. The issue is not whether or not uh, temptation is coming. It's how will we be prepared for temptation or how will we respond in the face of it? And so this is why he's telling us temptation is coming so we can be, be, be prepared beforehand. Uh, the, the battleground for temptation is far, far in advance. It is not in the moment of decision or action. Uh, and so James is going to kind of mess with our notion of what temptation is, and, and this is going to be part of it. Most of us think of like Nancy, wasn't it Nancy Reagan, just say no? Like you get to the moment of action and you just say no. When, when we think of temptation, we tend to associate it with real specific actions. So I feel tempted to go to this website that I shouldn't go to. I feel tempted to eat this other piece of pizza. I feel tempted to say this thing to my spouse that I know will really hurt them. You know, we, I feel tempted to watch just one more episode on the couch at my girlfriend's house, even though I know we said we would leave early. And even though I know we'll just, you know, we we flirt with these temptations thinking that once we get right to the crucial moment, we'll be able to say no. And I'm telling you, you will fail almost every time if you're waiting to make this decision right in the heat of the moment. When your emotions run high, when your hormones run high, your mind and body will almost always rebel against you. Like they, they will just you know, yeah, I was going to say something I shouldn't have said. They will not do what you want them to do, right? Uh, They will go in their own direction and something very powerful will take over there. That's why we have to realize temptation is real, it's coming, and we have to get prepared for it beforehand. The battleground of temptation is won long before the point of action or desire. So temptation is coming. Second, look look what he says now. Uh, He's saying temptation is about your heart and not your habits, uh, and I, I think we're, we're in for an overhaul on our understanding of temptation and the seriousness with which we take it here. So James, real, real cleverly here, points out that temptation is about your heart and not your habits. So he begins this way, which seems kind of out of place. Verse 13, he says, don't say, so this is when you are facing temptation, right? Like when temptation comes, don't say, God's tempting me. God's never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So this is what 
He's, the, the first thing he's trying to get us to see in this section is the human tendency to try to shift responsibility, to try to make it about somebody else. This was way back at the first temptation. Hey, man, I know what God said, but if you eat that tree, you won't really die. And they do, right? Adam and Eve, they don't listen. And then what happens? God comes to Adam and he says, what are you doing? Like, what, what happened here? You guys remember Adam's response? He says, well, God, see what happened is the woman that you gave me, right? God says to Adam, what have you done? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? God points it right to Adam. And first he shifts to his wife and says, it's kind of the woman's fault. And let's not forget, you gave her to me, right? So from the very beginning, Adam's like, I kind of did this, but if you think about it, God, it's really your fault. And, and listen, this may sound ridiculous to you, but I promise you, every human being does this. We'll say things like, so superficially, we'll, like men who are struggling with some form of sexual sin will blame the women, right? Well, if she didn't dress those, that way, if she didn't wear that perfume, if she didn't do these things. So yeah, I shouldn't have done this, but it's really on them. Or you'll hear people who, you know, are, are get a little closer to the heart of the matter that will say things like, God made me this way. Have you ever heard anybody say like, <laughs> I always see this around anger, where they're like, it's not my fault. God just made me passionate. And it's like, you don't get to blame God for the fact that you're a jerk, right? Or like, there's all kinds of ways. If God hadn't made me this way, if, if God hadn't given me this spouse, I wouldn't have to be, if God hadn't let this tragedy happen, then I wouldn't be this way. And what James is saying is your temptation is on you, period. You cannot put your temptation at the feet of anyone else. You can't blame anyone else for your temptation. You have to take responsibility for it. And, and he drives this point home by saying something that is so mind-bogglingly brilliant. Uh, verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Where do temptation come from? Our, our own desires. We're, we're to the heart of it. Temptation is born of distorted desires. This, when Solomon in Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart more than any treasure because your whole life flows from it, that's not a dating verse. Like, it applies to dating, I guess. Um, but what he's saying is protect the core of who you are. Protect your desires. Protect what you love. Protect your longings because everything you do in life is a result of what you love and what you desire. And listen, like, if you're not willing to listen to the word of God about this, or if you're like, oh, that sounds mumbo jumbo, heart and emotion stuff. Like, I, people get uncomfortable that I talk about emotions a lot. Like, if, which seems pretty black and white right there, right? Temptation comes from your own desires. If you don't believe the preacher and you won't believe the Bible, you believe your own life, okay? Look at, look at your own life. And, and here's what I mean. I would describe most of our attempts in this church to stop sinning or to overcome temptation as the just stop it method. And so we find very clever ways of telling one another, just stop it. So put this thing up, put this filter on your computer, get in this accountability group, read this book, do this thing, and just stop it. And, and what you will find is that over the long haul, that very rarely works. It, it can give you enough space around the issue to begin dealing with it. But listen, some of you have been struggling to just stop it for years and years and years and years because you failed to realize what the scriptures are telling you. Fundamentally, you have a heart problem, not a habit problem. Uh, yes, the habit is an issue, okay? So don't hear me saying that whatever that thing is that you're doing, the action you're doing 
as okay. I'm not saying that at all. It's probably sinful, right? If you, the, whatever the thing you're thinking about, it, yeah, that's offensive and you should stop doing that. But the deeper problem lies in the core of who you are. If your desires aren't straightened out, it'll just show up somewhere else. Like you've heard me tell this story before. A friend of mine who came and he's like, man, I quit smoking. It's been six weeks or something since I, I had a cigarette. And I was like, man, that's awesome. What did you do? He's like, chewing tobacco, right? It's like, it's like okay, it's kind of the same thing. Like still nicotine addiction. It's just a different thing, right? And so if, if we, you may be able to just stop it for a time, but if you don't deal with the core desires in your heart that's gone twisted, it'll just show up somewhere else in, in a different way. James James thunders this home by showing us another sobering reality about our sin. It's not, it's not a small thing. It is a life and death matter. And so like as a church, I want us to remove the language of white lie from our vocabulary. You know, or all the ways we say, oh, it's just a little sin, right? It's just not, it's not that big a deal. Or like guys, like it's just awful that we can make jokes like look but don't touch right? Well, it's cool that I can, I can look, but as long as I don't touch, right? It's, it's not the same, right? And we flirt with these sins. We, we, we toy with them. And, and this is what James says. Uh, when, you, when you're trying to fudge it just a little bit or, or get close to the line, watch this progression James points out. He says, these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So, He's saying, if you let these desires that you have roll around unattended and you let them fester like a pregnant lady, eventually it will give birth to sin. And if you keep messing with that sin, it will give birth to death. Twisted twisted desires give birth to sinful actions, which give birth to death. And in our camp, we tend to jump right to the eternal meaning, right? So that means I'm going to hell instead of of heaven. Uh, And I would say yes, right? Like, Yes, but it's also true today. You know, when when Jesus in his great prayer, he says, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's not saying like, God, just help us to wait until we get to heaven and everything can be all right. He's saying like, what happens here and today really, really matters. And, And the death you will experience if you keep on sinning is going to be ultimately a one day death, but it's also a today, here and now death. And it's different for whatever your sin is. Like if, if you keep, um, neglecting self-control in your life and you eat whatever you want. You never exercise. You do all that kind of stuff. Like you will carry the effects of that in your body. God, God doesn't throw like a type two diabetes judgment on you. It's like, this is the consequences of your sin. It breeds, breeds physical death. Like if you don't listen to any of your friends in your relationship or any of God's word and you're like sleeping together and fooling around and doing all of this stuff, like you will experience relational consequences of that. Maybe with your friends because now you're hiding from them or you're lying to them or you think that they don't see you parked out in front of your friend's house or whatever. And then all of a sudden there's this death in your relationships or you don't listen to God's commands in your dating relationship and you get married and you wonder why are all these awkward things suddenly showing up and why do I have all this guilt? Like the point is, pick any sin you want. It will bring death to you here and now. Relational death, spiritual death. Your conscience will, will accuse you and shout at you all night long because you know what you're doing is wrong. Sin always has consequences, period, whatever it is. So these, these are huge lessons for us, you guys. Temptation is coming. It's a fact of life. It's fundamentally a heart problem about your desires, what you love, and it is a life or death matter. James doesn't just warn us here, 
and he doesn't simply just tell us how to get through it. So for a long time in the church, we've talked about sin and temptation and said, now here's how to beat it, right? Here's the strategies to stop doing these things, which I think in a lot of ways has perpetuated our exhaustion. Because you've been dealing with your anger for 25 years, and you're basically just as angry. You, you just know more about how to feel bad afterwards or, or something like that. Like, I would say most of us, if you've been a Christian for a while, you have some sin that you've been dealing with for a very, very, very long time. See, what's so amazing about the gospel of Jesus is that it doesn't just give us power or strength or strategy to get through it. It, it actually gives us the ability to change and overcome these struggles, for them to be transformed and, and used in a way that deepens and strengthens our relationship with God. So from here, James starts making this turning point into more this invitation for us to open our eyes uh, so, so that we can see how faith works in the midst of temptation. What does it look like to face this kind of temptation with a heart of faith in fellowship with Christ? Uh, and so this is amazing. So here's what he says. Verse 16, he says, Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. So this is the transition point where he starts talking about, he doesn't just say no, here's what to say no to, here's what's bad, here's how to start saying yes to something different. And here's the word here I want you to think about, misled. So what James is saying here is that temptation is a liar. Temptation is a liar. And it'll be very difficult for us to change if we're not willing to see the lie and believe it deeply. Um, these first few verses kind of culminating here with don't be misled. He talks about don't be enticed, don't be lured away. It reminds me of fishing. Uh, if, and fishermen, any fishers here? Fishermen's, right? Yeah, that's about the response we got in the first service. No more fishing analogies. I will Allow me to explain fishing to you. Um, so there's a fish down there who's dumb and... I say that as not pejoratively, but as a statement of reality. It's not his fault he's dumb, right? Like he was made with not much on his plate by the God of the universe. And most of his life is spent around staying safe and eating. So you ever notice like you will rarely find fish in deep open water, right? You have to, here's a tip. Maybe this is why you're not catching any fish. You keep fishing in open water. You got to go to places where there's rocks you got to go places where some idiot, when he was 16, sunk his own boat and left it there, or like a reef, because the fish want a safe place to hide, because they don't want to get eaten. Do you realize that? Fish don't want to be eaten. So Nemo's down there just hanging out, and then he hears something, and this shiny thing comes, and then it starts spinning, and it has like legs and colors, and something in him says, you should eat that. So in the moment, right, like the fish wants to eat, and that's not bad, right? Like the fish doesn't, y'all uptight this morning, like a fish doesn't need to repent of being hungry, right? Right. Uh, the problem isn't that he wants to eat. The problem is he is being lied to, right? Fishermen are liars. N not, just because of the, not just because of the pictures. And listen, you might, be, you might be fooling the 15-year-old with that, like, holding it close to the camera trick. The fishermen, know, we all know it's not as big as you made it look in your picture. Uh, they're not just lying in the pictures, but they're lying by trying to tell the fish, hey, this is something you should eat. And the fish believes the lie. He's lured out of safety, right? This is the language James is using. He's enticed out of this safe place, and he does something 
out of probably a good desire, but he ends up being food for someone else. It's like the battle to win temptation starts maybe like right now when you're feeling kind of Christian and like maybe a little bit hopeful and to say like those feelings of temptation are lying to me. They're lying to me. They're trying to lure me out and entice me. This is why it's so important for James that he tells us it's not, who, it's not God who brings the temptation. God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. God is reliable and, and consistent. Listen, like, if you don't want to believe that and you don't want to believe the Bible again, here's another test from your own life. How many times do you have to feed and give in to temptation only to have it disappoint you before you're willing to believe temptation is a liar? Like, how many times do you have to disagree with God's command and have it disappoint you and blow up in your face before you're willing to say, I'm not so smart, right? Like, I don't know what's best. How many times, you know this, people, you know this. How many times do you have to listen to what seems right to you and have it disappoint you, blow up in your face, give you the exact opposite of what you want before you come to the word of God and say, maybe Jesus is right, right? Like maybe the maker of heaven and earth is right. And you, man, you know exactly who I'm talking about. You know if that's you. You know the thing that you keep doing that God's like, hey, listen, that's not for you. And you keep doing it how many times before you're willing to believe? And so here, like, a couple of quick examples that I wish I knew how much I'd have to deal with these kinds of situations before I became a pastor. Like, have you ever met somebody that like five, six years down the road was like one of the best decisions I ever made for me, for my kids, was to have that affair? Like that adultery did everything I hoped it would do. And the child support is awesome. The weird holidays is awesome. Like, how? M- There's too many people in our church right now for me not to assume that some of you are thinking about having an affair. And listen, it has never worked for anyone. Period. Have you ever met someone that said, you know, like all these feelings of like loneliness and longing? They really went away when I really gave in to my pornography. Right? Like, it has not worked for anyone. And now our sociologists, our psychologists, people who don't care about God are like writing in the New Yorker about the dangers of pornography. Like our culture is about to have a counter-rebellion against it because we see all of the damage it's doing to people in our brains, you know, in our relationships. Like your life bears the evidence that temptation is a liar. Now, now to begin dealing with this, it, it will require deep soul work on our parts. Like you're going to have to be able to take long looks in the mirror and wrestle with really difficult questions. And so take some time. Consider the temptation you face most often. Um, and it, it could be masquerading in something entirely silly or something that somebody else would look like and be like, well, that seems ridiculous. And so, yeah, I'll share one with you. Um, That's, yeah, it's embarrassing, it's difficult for me. Um, And you're probably gonna laugh, and I just promise it's not a joke, uh, and to show you how these things work. So for me, um, you know, for years, I've had a daily battle with the Chinese buffet. Amen, anybody else? The Chinese buffet, amen, thank you, I appreciate that. Now, I didn't go to a Chinese buffet every day, but I promise you I thought about it every day. 
um, similar to a bacon, egg, and cheese McGriddle from McDonald's, right? And if you've never had one of those, then you don't understand, right? Like, <laughs> um, and it's easy to laugh at that and be like, well, that's stupid, um, or that's, that's ridiculous. Um, but remember, James says, you know, temptation is fundamentally a heart problem, not just a habit problem. Um, and uh, think about the fish here. So you could say, like, Chinese buffets, that's dumb. Just don't go, right, if, it, if you feel so terrible about this. Most of the things you're struggling with, you already know are bad, right? <laughs> like, you don't know, need someone to come and tell you. Most of us, some, some people new to the faith, need some help learning these things. Uh, so remember, you look at the fish, and you say, well, what was he wanting that made him commit suicide like that, right? Like, to go eat that bait and get tugged up on the boat. He wanted food. Like, he wanted to be cared for. So you got to look at whatever that temptation is, the thing that you keep doing and can't figure out why you're doing it, and ask, what am I really wanting there? What am I desiring there? And when I was able to turn that look on to Chinese buffets, why do I feel like, I know this is so bad for me, right? Like, how many pounds do you need to gain before you start questioning your Chinese buffet strategy? Apparently a lot, right? Like, for, my, for me, it was a lot. And you start asking, how does it make me feel when I do this? And there are brief moments, for me, it made me feel like I mattered. You know, if, if you get to your early, mid-30s, you start having some kids, you get a job, and it just feels like everybody wants something from you. You know that feel, like, let the 30-year-old say amen, right? Like, you feel like there's no space for you in your life, like it's out of control, and you just want something that you can hold and look at and say, mine, right? I do this, and it makes me feel like I matter in this world. And so, listen, is it bad and sinful to want to feel like you matter in this world? Yeah, see, there's the problem, right? No, no. We'll get to this in a minute. But if you think there's something sinful and twisted about you because you want to feel loved and cared for and like you matter, you have a very shallow understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God who created all things in the service of his own worship, right? Like to, to want to feel like you're belonging and you matter. That desire isn't bad, but boy, had it gone sideways. And fundamentally, it doesn't work right? You got to see what's underneath this action, the good desire that's gone wrong. What is the desire that's giving birth to this? And that'll help you start seeing this temptation. It's lying to you. Like, oh, I know you want to feel loved, but that's lying to you. Whatever that thing you, I know you want to feel safe. That's lying to you. That won't do it for you. And how many times do you have to try it before you're willing to believe? James is saying the first step in transforming our temptation is seeing that it's lying to us. Don't be fooled. You are not the exception, okay? So things like adultery, I don't know, pornography, like all these sins, there's so many people that think like, but for me it will, right? For me it will work. For, and I'm just telling you, it won't. How many thousands and millions of people need to do the same thing that you're thinking about doing before you're willing to believe I'm not the exception? James is saying, please don't be fooled. Don't be like the fish. Don't leave for this lie. Then second, see the lie. What do you do about your desires? Uh, three words that will change your life if you let them. Obey the truth. Obey the truth. So again, here's a good Baptist play on words for you. Heart work is hard work, okay? If you want to untwist your desires, it's hard. soul work is slow work. That's one I like a little bit better. 
So if you're like, man, I just need to read that next book on this issue and I will be different. No, you won't, okay? If you have persistent issues in your life and you're like, I don't need counseling, I don't need help, you're just gonna do it again. Well, this relationship will be different. This situation, this job will be, no, it won't be, okay? You are the problem there. It's slow work and it's hard work. Untwisting your desires will take time, probably several years. But I think most of us have been coming at this entirely backwards. So verse 17, it's getting good now. That was all introduction, here we go. Um, He chose to give birth to us by giving his true word. He, that's God, chose, like he did it, right? Give, it was a gift, birth. He made us, right? Like there's all this language about sin, giving birth to death and now saying, "Ah, but, but God, he gives birth to us, a new creation, a new people through his true word. Uh, This certainly means Jesus, right? Like he gave us his son and that's how he makes us safe with him. This new birth happened by giving us his true, I don't know how else to break it down, black and white. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a child of God? Because he gave birth to you by giving you the true word. So here's what this means. It's not your success in overcoming temptation that makes you safe with God. It is not your success in overcoming temptation that makes you safe with God. It's the blood of Jesus shed for you. It is the righteousness of Jesus that's wrapped around you. And how many of us look at our lives and our obedience as the sacrificial offering we make to keep God happy? Don't throw that verse at Romans at me. It says this is your suitable act of worship, right? This is how you respond to love God. You're just like, well, it's the living sacrifice, right? You know the verse I'm talking about, you neat nicks. This is not what he is saying here. So many of us think if we do this right, Or if I can, how many years are you going to spend judging your relationship with God based on whether or not you did that thing this week? And he's saying, listen, you are a Christian. You are safe because I have made you so. The gospel of Jesus screams at us. You are safe, not because of anything that you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And this changes everything about obedience. It's no longer about making God happy. It's about us becoming human again. It's about us being who God made us to be. And I'm telling you, most of us don't get this. So here's a wonderful illustration the Lord gave to me earlier in this week. I'm in the backyard playing with my kids, okay? And a couple weeks ago, I gave a sermon about taking care of your lawn, and then we forgot about our lawn and went on vacation. We had like four foot high grass, and the city came and told us to cut it or else. And so there's all kinds of creatures in in our grass now. And there was a snake. There was a snake in the grass. We're playing catch, and this snake slithers by. And I was like, ooh, gardener snake, I'll catch it. And I come, I come like tiptoeing, and the thing spins around, coils up, and goes into like strike mode. And I was like, whoa, buddy, like a <laughs> little gardener snake, right? And he starts like trying to tag us. And so I get this long stick out. I've watched Steve Irwin, and I've got my stick. <laughs> and this thing is like biting the stick. Uh, mean old snake. And my four-year-old who is a little more bold in that moment than my three-year-old, he starts itching closer. Be like, can I look at it, Dad? Can I look at it, Dad? And I'm like, you can get close. Not, don't, not, not too close now, right? Don't touch. I said, don't touch the snake. See, look at him biting the stick, boy. Look at him biting the stick. He will do that to you. Don't get too close. And he kept itching, inching closer to it. And I put my hand on his chest. You know, like a dad where you put that like big, my hand is like the size of his whole body and just put it on him. I put it on him and I said, 
hey, do not touch that snake. You get dad voice, it's a gift every man's given, right? This happens. Now, in that moment, when I said, do not touch that snake, was I implying, and if you do, I will revoke your last name and I will throw you out of this family and take you to an orphanage. Yeah, yeah, you guys laugh at that. But is that not how so many of us live our Christian lives? I know you said this, God. And now that I've done this, I'm convinced you've thrown me out of the family. I've failed your test. Me saying to my boy, don't touch the snake, was born out of such love and wisdom, right? So much love for him. And listen, I am so much smarter than my four-year-old. And my four-year-old's smarter than your four-year-old, I'm pretty sure. He's very gifted. But listen, even the smartest four-year-old is like barely smarter than a rock, right? Like, in the, you know, I'm, I'm not really honestly not trying to make this funny because it's a big deal. Um, he's, he's not that smart. And, and I know more than he does. And I say these things to him because I love him and I want him to do well. And if, if you are that much smarter than your child, goodness, how much more wise, how much more intelligent is God than you? This is the posture we must take in obedience. These are the words of a good father who loves me. These are the words of a good dad who knows more than I do. And you, you got to start believing this now, okay? Because listen, again, there will be times when your mind, your hormones, your body, your emotions will all rage against you. And in those moments, like in the heat of the moment, y'all, is a real bad time to start listening to yourself. It's just bad. You'll, you'll make bad decisions. And in that moment, when you feel yourself spinning, you feel yourself rising, you rest on what you know is true, on what God has told you, on what your father is saying to you. And I promise you, this will rarely feel good in the moment. Whoever said following Jesus was supposed to feel good all the time has done us a real disservice. You are rewiring your brain. You are reshaping your emotions in partnership with the Holy Spirit of God. Like, it will not be easy. Often, just the opposite. Especially if you've been doing things, habits, uh, I don't know, all these kinds of things that can have physiological effects on us. But if you don't listen to that voice, the snake will bite you. And in the case of sin, this snake's bite results in death. Death. We need to overhaul the way we see temptation and obedience in our church. And so, listen, if you're trying, if you're obeying to try and stay in the family of God, to try to please God or make him happy with you, with all the love in my heart, I'm telling you, you do not believe the gospel. Point blank. If you want to be changed, if you want to experience the joy of being who God says you already are, if you want to be free from the sin that so easily ensnares you, here's the, here's the glorious rhythm of the Christian life. Listen and obey. And then listen some more and, and obey some more. Wouldn't it? Like, guys, if we were a church where we started really listening to our friends, if you started listening to the people who, don't, who are outside of your 
swirled up world of emotion and confusion. Because I'll, I'll, like, I'll speak on behalf of the pastors. It feels like in the last year, we've got this script that we read that says, hey, don't do this. And then we get 15 people to come around them and say, hey, don't do this. And then you just hear like, but we're different. You don't understand. And it's like, okay, see you in six months when it blows up again because you know better than everybody else. What if we were a church that was willing to believe that same skepticism we put out on everybody else if for just a moment we put it on ourselves? You know, like, maybe I don't know this. Maybe I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am not nearly as mature as I think I am. And here would maybe be the real leap of faith. These things that people are saying to me are birthed out of love, not out of accusation, not of anger, not because they want bad things for me. If you listen and obey the voice of your father, over time, your desires will change. I don't know... This is fundamentally a supernatural work of the Spirit of God where he comes and reshapes us. And the only way I know that we participate in this is to listen and obey. Over time, you will see the lie of the temptation, how it gives you just the opposite of, you want, of what you're really wanting. And in this rhythm, we will learn to receive and embrace this gorgeous, beautiful status God has given to us. So here's how James closes. We, out of all creation, became his prized possession. So yeah, you're a little dumb, right? Like, yeah, you're a little kid. You're vulnerable. You're needy. But you are his prized possession. There's nothing in this world that he loves like he loves you. And if, if you're willing to believe this just a little bit, you, you, you know, there's a really famous passage in here that we haven't talked about yet. And I don't think until you get to this place of being willing to see that God is a father who loves you and knows what's best for you, that we can see the real wonder of this famous verse here. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. Whatever is good. And that whatever, it means whatever, right? Your translation may, be, may, may say every good and perfect gift, right? So wherever it's found, Wherever goodness is found, like not, not just at the Christian bookstore or the Christian radio station. Isn't it funny how there aren't Christian restaurants? Isn't that weird? We think there can be good meals, but whatever. Go learn what that means. You know what I'm saying? Like God is not concerned about fitting into these small paradigms. He's saying wherever you find something good, you know who that comes from? That comes from God. This means that goodness, good things, wherever they're found are pathways to God. So listen, the answer to someone struggling with sexual sin isn't to cut off all sexual desire. Like, do you realize that was God's idea? Sexual, that fire inside of you? That was God's idea. The person struggling with food who eats too much or not enough or only eats bad things, you don't look at that person and say, hey, you know what? Uh, repent of being hungry and never be hungry again, right? Like the goal isn't to kill those desires. It's to find healthy pathways for those desires, to trust God and follow him with those desires. And so one of the ways that we do this is if we open our eyes to all of these good things God has given us and see how he's showing his love everywhere we go. Even on normal days like today, like did, if you woke up this morning and you got to pick what pair of shoes you put on, or you got to decide 
what you ate for breakfast. Or like you came to a church that had air conditioning and, you know, like we're not really worried about violence breaking out here. Like those are gifts. If you woke up this morning pain-free, that's a gift. If you woke up this morning disease-free, like that is a gift. And if, if you're willing to open your eyes and say, what is good in my life? And this is, these are love notes from dad reminding me that I am his prized possession. It will help you so much to be able to take that desire to feel important, that desire to feel safe, that desire to feel heard, whatever that is, and start directing that towards God. In Christ, born of the true word, you are God's most prized possession, and he is showering you with gifts all day long if only you would have eyes to see it. In in Christ, God only has smiles for you. Therefore, if any was in in Christ, he is a new creation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. That is a fancy way of saying, if you trust Jesus, God is never mad at you. He only has smiles for you. So be free of thinking you have to overcome temptation to please him because he's pleased already. Be free of thinking that you can never change because he's with you. Hear him calling you home. Trust and obey, Christian. Uh, And so we we root all of this in the the most clear evidence of God's goodness that we have. We have evidence of God's love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still dumb, while we were still a mess, Christ died for us. And so we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. This is the guarantee that we can overcome sin and temptation. This is the guarantee that we don't have to change to please God, but we can change to be who God made us to be. If you're here and you're not a Christian, like I want you to hear there's a way to be free of that guilt. There's a way to be free of those voices running in your head saying that you're not enough, you haven't done enough, you can't be enough. And there is a way to change, to look at your temptation, to look at those sins that have been besetting you for years and years and years and overcome them in Christ. Uh, If you're here and you are a Christian, just remember how safe you are. Come, remember God's love for you again, and go, and like a good son, a good daughter, listen and obey this week because your dad knows best. He does this out of love for you because he wants good things for you. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. A wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and we'll have gluten-free elements to my left and a few stations in the back. I'll pray for us, and then... uh, Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.